Good evening, fellow lover of the strange and unusual. I'm Jessica Hobbs, author of the story you are about to enjoy. This tale is part of a collection of short stories titled The Witch and Other Tales of the American Gothic, an assemblage of strange occurrences across the complicated patchwork of 19th century America. If you have found your way here, you, like me, might frequently find yourself pondering the what-ifs that fuel our deepest fears. What if there really is a monster in the forest? What if the worst aspects of ourselves lead us to our painful demise? What if our mind someday begins to betray us? Today's episode is a tale of delusion, regret, sleep deprivation, and indelible despair. Join us in Chicago in 1885, where the field of psychiatry is rapidly changing as we charge toward the 20th century for the chilling story of the psychiatrist. The Psychiatrist, Chicago, Illinois, 1885. Are you ready to wake up? His eyes shot open and his heart skipped a beat in his chest. The woman's voice rang in his mind as if she had been mere centimeters from his ear, but after the initial confusion he always felt upon waking in such an abrupt manner, his senses returned to him and he knew no one accompanied him in his bedchamber. A recurring dream, it must have been. But the voice was so loud and so clear, it frightened him all the same. He would be awake for hours now, trying in vain to settle his racing heart and lull his thoughts back into a state of calm that would allow him to sleep again. Alas, he had been through it enough to know the effort was futile, and instead resigned to use the long nighttime hours to resume his studies in the library. Dr. Nathaniel Martin considered himself extremely lucky to have chosen the field of psychiatry at such a remarkable time in the history of the profession. Educated men of his generation were ushering in a sea of positive changes to the field in an effort to classify, understand, and alleviate, if not entirely cure, mental ailments after decades of horrible rumors about the inhumane treatments at asylums across the United States and Europe. Not too long ago, asylums were considered to be the only appropriate place to house pauper lunatics, as they were often called. But at Nathaniel's Hospital, the county insane asylum and infirmary, he and his colleagues strived to make it a respectable alternative to incarceration for the mentally ill. The city of Chicago had gone through a multitude of changes in the past ten years alone. New factories and mills had opened their doors to workers at a pace never seen in his lifetime, and the city struggled to keep up with the demand for housing and medical care. The Chicago weather was unforgiving, to say the least, and so too were the conditions of the city's many poor houses and prisons— the sole source of shelter for those who were too ill, in body or in mind, to work. This was the need Nathaniel's Hospital promised to meet for the many who found themselves displaced in such a time of transition, and at the forefront of the city's progress was Dr. Nathaniel Martin himself. He settled into his study, surrounded by heavy books, papers strewn across his desk, and the warm glow of a lantern as snow gently fell outside his window. He tried to read his favorite new text— a study on the effects of alcoholism not just in the patients themselves, but in their relatives and ancestors. Though intrigued by its findings, 
he found his eyes to be too heavy from lack of sleep. He picked up a stack of papers on the corner of his desk and perused through them. Charcoal sketches he had done of various patients, a habit he had picked up during his residency. Nathaniel enjoyed his work, that was not to be doubted. But it could not be denied that the nature of it was, at times, quite stressful. For reasons unknown to him, sketching the patient's face while listening to their stories had a soothing effect. It was a way to see them that didn't involve too much eye contact, which made many of them feel distressed, as if they were animals being observed in a zoo. The conversation felt more natural and less like a science experiment, which, in all honesty, it actually was. A pang of sadness overcame him as he happened upon a sketch of one patient in particular, Charlie Winston, a troubled young man who had recently passed away after a fatal, self-inflicted overdose of chloroform. Who at the hospital could have been so careless as to allow a patient access to the usually locked medicine cabinet, Nathaniel could not say. Charlie's face looked back at him from the drawing, his eyes round, his face drooped, his hair starting to thin quite early for a man his age. A childhood filled with hardship and poverty had led Charlie's mental illness to become so severe it had consumed his every thought, both in waking life and in his subconscious dreams. Indeed, it had come to define the poor young man's entire personality. Nathaniel grieved Charlie's decision to take his own life, but deep down, a part of himself could understand the patient's need to end his own suffering. The tragedy of it all was the hospital's failure, and indeed, the failure of Dr. Martin himself to cure him in time. He set down the pile of sketches, still at a loss as to how to while away the hours until dawn, until an idea took hold of him. It had been far too long since he had written to his brother, Edward. Oh, how Nathaniel admired his dear younger brother. Edward was nothing short of a genius. His skills as an architect had earned him the highest praise from city officials by the startlingly young age of 25, and now, barely 30, he had recently relocated to work for the premier architecture firm in New York. Both brothers had done remarkably well for themselves considering their humble beginnings. Mother had been a beloved school teacher, and father had been the keeper of a bookshop near the University of Illinois. The shop's location attracted many scholars, most of whom father befriended, and it was through these connections that both sons had been offered positions as students in their chosen fields after their father's untimely death. Nathaniel had been but 17 and Edward 13 when their father passed after a terribly painful lung infection. The intervention of their father's acquaintances had been rather fortunate, but it was still the obligation of the elder brother to look after the younger from that point forward. Father had been a forward-thinking man who valued education and social progress, and though Edward took after their mother in likeness, Nathaniel saw a striking resemblance to their father in speech, mannerism, and sense of idealism. Seated comfortably at his desk, Nathaniel composed a letter. Dear Edward, I should begin by informing you that Mother is doing well, continues to teach, even though I frequently remind her that she is welcome to retire and move in with me at any time. I'm also doing well in my work at the hospital, although my troubled sleep continues to cause additional challenges to an already challenging work environment. I confess I have always been afraid of going to bed. Not of going to sleep, mind you, but of retiring to the darkness of my bedchamber and laying awake for hours. Lately, I have been having the most puzzling, reoccurring nightmare, in which I hear a woman's voice speak so clearly in my ear, I can't help but wake up convinced that she's in the room with me. Of course, she never is. Alas, I fear that I will not sleep again before the dawn. 
and will require a good amount of coffee to get me through my work day. The work itself keeps me going, and for that I am fortunate. Our city expands by the day, and I see workers come and go from steel mills and factories at all hours of the day at night. Sometimes in the vicious wind or snow, and I remind myself to be grateful for the occupation I have. Chicago misses you. As do I. However, I greatly look forward to visiting New York in the very near future to see a building my younger brother has contributed to its most magnificent skyline. Take care of yourself, brother. I look forward to a reply from you soon. Ever yours, Nathaniel. hospital could be a difficult place to work after a sleepless night, but Nathaniel persevered as he always had. The insomnia was nothing new. In fact, he could remember sleepless nights as young as five years old. Even when he did manage to fall asleep, nightmares were not uncommon. As he approached adulthood and found himself with additional responsibilities after the death of his father and during his time at the university, the worry kept him awake even more. This had been a significant factor in his choice of psychiatry as a field of study. He desperately wanted to understand the underlying anxiety in his brain that provided such an obstacle to a normal circadian rhythm. Sleep deprivation was not just a matter of feeling tired the following day. Over extended periods of time, it left Nathaniel feeling physically and mentally exhausted, as if his entire body were made of lead. It took a great deal of focus to force his brain to communicate with the rest of his body to move, His skin felt warm from an overactive heartbeat, and his vision blurred almost to the point of feeling impaired by the effects of alcohol. Nevertheless, Nathaniel managed to pry himself from the comfort of his sheets even after a mere hour or two of sleep, wash up, trim his beard and brush his hair, and dress respectably. He kept his spirits high as he checked his notes for the day over what was sure to be the first of many cups of coffee. The day did not seem to have anything unusual in store for him, just observational sessions with patients in various states of depression or grief, none of which, to his knowledge, had progressed to a full state of psychosis. Dr. Martin approached the first patient's room, a teenage boy who had recently lost his father to a dreadful case of tuberculosis. But as he entered the room, he was startled to find the young man already being interviewed by a different psychiatrist. The boy looked up with surprise at Dr. Martin's unintentional interruption, but the psychiatrist continued to look ahead, his back to the door, undisturbed by the noise behind him. Nathaniel mumbled a brief apology and quickly exited, puzzled by the mix-up in rooms. The room next door, perhaps, was the one he should have entered. But upon his second attempt, he found himself in the same predicament. A boy, younger this time, maybe about 11 or 12, also being interviewed by a separate psychiatrist with his back to the door. Again, the boy looked up, but the psychiatrist did not. Baffled, Nathaniel stood still for a moment, overhearing a piece of the conversation that struck him as more of a lecture. Guilt can be a powerful motivator, the psychiatrist said to the child. Perhaps this incident of losing him in the woods and the feelings it had caused to rise within you can be a reminder in the future that one must be more responsible, particularly with children younger than yourself. Dr. Martin suddenly realized the impropriety of eavesdropping on such a conversation and left the room, gently shutting the door behind him. 
He shuffled through his notes, hoping to find once and for all where he needed to be and with which patient he was supposed to speak. But he felt his confusion magnified when he couldn't seem to find any notes at all. The papers in his hands were all blank. The loud bang of a door down the hall startled him, and when he looked up, he saw nothing but a long, white stretch of hallway with many heavy, locked doors on either side, but no exit. Panic rising within him, he rushed to the end of the hallway, a dead end. He opened the first door he could see, hoping to find someone who could help explain to him where he could possibly have taken a wrong turn and how to get back to the hospital ward in which he belonged. Instead, he happened upon yet another curious session, in which an unseen psychiatrist was speaking to a young boy, this time a boy young enough to still be attending primary school. Remember what your father told you, said the psychiatrist. You are the older brother, and you will one day become the man of the house, and the man of the house cannot afford to lose his temper in this way. Your brother is not to be hit, no matter how frustrated you may be with him. He is younger and smaller than you are, and he needs you to look out for him. Nathaniel stormed out of the room, slamming the door behind him. What in the devil was going on? Professionalism be damned. He had a right to know who these mysterious colleagues of his were and what kind of bizarre administrative mix-up had led to this situation. With a newfound sense of righteousness, he stormed right back into the room. Good morning. Uh, pardon the disturbance, but my name is Dr. Nathaniel Martin, and I— He trailed off when he realized the session was continuing in spite of his presence. Does it upset you to be responsible for Edward? The psychiatrist asked. Edward? Nathaniel's heart jumped into his throat when the stunning coincidences added up to the point that they could no longer be ignored. The oldest patient he had observed so far was being counseled after the death of his father due to tuberculosis, the same cause of death that claimed the life of his own father at exactly that age. The second boy was wrapped with guilt after losing a child younger than he, and the third was enduring a lecture on responsibility following a physical outburst toward a younger sibling similar to one his own father had given him at that age, a younger sibling named Edward. Could this boy be a distant relative? Edward was a common name in his family, and if Dr. Martin had been assigned to speak with one of these patients, the discovery of a familial connection could absolutely have been the reason the patients had been reassigned to someone else. But someone needed to answer him in order for him to get to the bottom of the issue. Excuse me! He barked. Again, he received no response. He exited the room in a huff, slamming the door behind him. Hello? He shouted into the empty hall. Can anyone hear me? Anyone? Silence. He opened another door and found himself again intruding on the session with the teenage boy. He blinked. His head was beginning to feel woozy from the day's overwhelming amount of confusion. He tried another door and found the young boy hearing the responsibility lecture. He tried another and happened upon a fourth session, this time the youngest boy yet, probably around the age of five. It is natural to be jealous of a sibling, the psychiatrist explained to him in a gentle tone. You mustn't think you are unusual to feel that way about a new baby. Babies need a great deal of attention and you may be feeling left out now that your mother and father have him to tend to each day. But Nathaniel, Edward is your flesh and blood, and attempting to give him another family is not something you should consider again. Your brother's not like a toy you've grown tired of or a pair of shoes that no longer fit. Family is forever. Nathaniel, 
baby Edward. Family is forever. Father had said the exact same thing to him when he was a child, jealous of his new baby brother, and determined to reset the family dynamic to what it had been before Edward's presence had changed everything. Nathaniel, of course, had no idea the severity of his actions at the tender age of five, but nevertheless, the memory had haunted him and brought with it an almost unbearable sense of guilt well into his adult life. He stormed out again, his head spinning, his palms sweating, his breath labored. The folder full of empty pages fell from his grasp and scattered across the floor. His entire body stiffened and his heart beat so quickly he felt as though it could shatter his ribs. He had seen many patients suffer from a psychotic break, but had never had the misfortune of suffering one himself. Until this moment. Nathaniel fell to his knees and lost control of his lungs, only managing to breathe in heavy sobs, then collapsed onto his side against the cold tile floor. Ahead of him lay the never-ending white hallway and its many doors to nowhere. He was positively paralyzed with the desperate need to escape and the utter helplessness of not knowing how. He lay there on the floor for what seemed like hours, staring into nothing, when his gaze finally landed on the empty papers. But not all of them were empty anymore. Four of them contained sketches, done in Nathaniel's own penmanship, of the boys who were currently being interviewed. He slowly sat up and reached for them for closer inspection. Lining all four of them up side by side, the resemblance was obvious. Each one was identical to how Nathaniel himself had looked at each respective age. He found an ink-tip pen in the pocket of his white coat and began furiously scribbling a letter to Edward for reasons he didn't even fully understand. Dearest Edward, I write to you today from a most desperate place. I seem to be having some sort of psychotic episode. And though I cannot explain even to my own satisfaction, I am overwhelmed with the feeling that my hallucinations, or whatever these visions may be, are somehow connected to my relationship with you. I carry much guilt in my heart for failing to be the older brother you deserved when we were children. It is the greatest hope of my life that I have redeemed myself in looking out for you since father passed. Now. In the midst of a mental crisis, I find myself in need of the same sort of guidance and must ask for your help. If by the grace of God this message should find you, you must come to the hospital at once. Nathaniel dropped the pen before bothering to sign his name. He was alone in this hallway, trapped like an animal, with none of his colleagues or patients, let alone a postman to retrieve the letter. Are you ready to wake up? A flash of energy bolted through his body like lightning. The woman was here, watching him, taunting him, perhaps even studying him. But where could she be? He leapt to his feet and stormed back into a room, the one with the teenage boy. Where is she? Nathaniel cried. The psychiatrist seemed engrossed in his notes, rather, in the sketch he was composing of the teenage patient, and ignored him. Tell me where she is, goddammit. Nathaniel lunged forward and grabbed the man by the shoulders, forcing him to turn around. He froze when he saw his own expressionless face staring back at him. You are the man of the house now, Nathaniel, his reflection said. Your father prepared you for the inevitability of this day, and though it has come sooner than we could have hoped, it has arrived nonetheless. Nathaniel's eyes welled with tears. Why are you doing this? He cried to no one in particular. He backed up to the wall and buried his head in his hands. The gaze of his other self remained on him, unbroken. Are you ready to wake up? 
the woman asked again. Tell me you heard her, he yelled to both of the other men in the room. You heard it. You must have. They gave no response. Are you ready to wake up? He wanted to respond to her, to ask her where she was, who she was, and why she would do this to him, but the words did not come. He slid down the wall, sobbing like a child, feeling his heart beat in his throat, and prayed that his mind would finally allow him to cry himself to sleep. Are you ready to wake up? Nathaniel's eyes opened slowly, and for a brief moment, his mind was entirely empty. A sense of calm washed over him, but was immediately replaced by a sense of confusion. This was not his bed, nor even his home. The walls were bare and reflected the harsh afternoon sun into his eyes. There you are. Welcome back, said the voice. He sat up quickly and found himself eye to eye with a woman, about his own age, wearing a white coat over her simple blue dress, her hair tied up in a professional manner, with a notebook in her lap. Do you remember where you are? No. What is this place? You're at the hospital. Nathaniel felt a sense of relief so strong he almost began to laugh. He had fallen asleep at the hospital, and the visions had been nothing more than one of his nightmares. Oh, dear. I believe this is a first for me. Falling asleep in the middle of a workday. I, I must apologize. This is deeply unprofessional of me. The woman took a long pause before responding to him. Do you remember my name? I I'm afraid I do not. I'm Dr. Lindstrom, your psychiatrist. Please, don't be alarmed. It often takes a moment for your memory to catch up when you come back. Come back... He almost chuckled again. Where have I been? In a state of hypnosis. It has been a part of our work together for a few weeks now. Although he was aware that many of his colleagues had recently begun to practice hypnosis with some of their more repressed patients, he had not been a part of it himself. A familiar feeling washed over him, similar to what he had felt in his nightmare. It wasn't just fear. It was far more painful than that. It was the feeling that the inside of his body was made of glass and could shatter at any moment. It was the feeling of slowly sliding toward a deep, dark pit of despair and knowing he would be powerless to keep himself from falling over the edge. Would you like to tell me what you saw? Was Edward there? Edward? How could she know about Edward? The question was silly. He knew that as soon as he thought of it. He had obviously told her about him, though he couldn't remember doing so. How about Charlie? Did you think about him? Who? Your patient, Charlie Winston. It hurt to hear his name. Nathaniel's eyes welled up with tears so quickly it took him by surprise. There was something else eating away at him. The black pit of despair before him was not just one of depression or disappointment. It was also filled with grief. Charlie Winston had recently died from a chloroform overdose in his hospital room. But as soon as Nathaniel thought of it, 
he knew in his heart that the story he had been telling himself was not correct. Charlie's death had not been a suicide. Rather, Nathaniel had attempted to subdue him during a manic episode and held the chemicals to Charlie's face for a second too long. He remembered it clearly now, the moment Charlie's body went limp in his arms. He himself was culpable in the death of a man whose well-being was Nathaniel's own responsibility. He had not slept for days leading up to the tragedy and had spent the week drifting through the hospital halls like a ghost, trying his best to focus on his work but constantly feeling the weight of sheer exhaustion in every inch of his body, and in that crucial moment, had lost his focus in what he was doing, staring into the wall ahead of him as Charlie thrashed and squirmed under the weight of Nathaniel's grasp. When Nathaniel came to and realized where he was, the unintended damage had been done, and Charlie did not survive. Charlie. Oh, God, Charlie. Nathaniel buried his head in his hands. Was he there this time? Nathaniel shook his head. How about Edward? Did you revisit any memories of him? Her questions implied a connection between Edward and Charlie Winston, and he deeply dreaded the answer as to what one had to do with the other. The pivotal moments Nathaniel had just revisited had all suggested he carried guilt for somehow having failed his younger brother, and he was a competent enough psychiatrist to know that such specific memories had to have been triggered by something extremely traumatic. As he felt his emotions tumble into the pit, he slowly came face to face with the facts that hid inside of it. Something was wrong with Edward. Edward had been hurt. Edward was dead. Edward had brought his offer letter from the New York firm over to Nathaniel's home during their usual Friday evening supper. Nathaniel could not have been more delighted for his younger brother, but his jubilation was tempered by Edward's reluctance to take the job, explaining that he had recently met a most inspiring young woman from Virginia who had witnessed many deaths as a young child during the Civil War and had subsequently devoted herself to a career as a nurse. Her determination is like nothing I've witnessed before, Edward told Nathaniel, his round eyes sparkling. He was a very handsome man, clean-shaven and with excellent posture, but he had somehow managed to retain a boyish look about him due to his ever-curious nature. At least, that was how Nathaniel, who had always been and would always be the older sibling, saw him. She is entirely dedicated to the practice of medicine and retains such a lovely, warm sense of humor in the midst of so much suffering. Edward continued. These are qualities I've always wanted in a future wife, and I intend to ask her to marry me. With your blessing, of course. Nathaniel leaned back in his chair and carefully considered Edward's suggestion. Edward nervously drank more of his wine. Well, I applaud the young woman, of course. I expect she will have many prospects for suitable spouses. But this offer is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Surely there will be dozens of eligible women to choose from in New York, especially now that you are on your way to becoming one of the most successful architects in the country. Edward nodded, avoiding eye contact. Nathaniel could read his brother's kind eyes better than anyone, and knew he was feeling disappointed by Nathaniel's response, but not at all surprised. 
All I mean to say is, as you have a bright future ahead in matters of finance and romance, the best is most certainly yet to come. He gave a kind smile. Whatever your decision, father would have been very proud of you. As am I. Edward smiled in return. Perhaps you are right. To the future. He raised his wine glass for a toast. Nathaniel raised his glass as well. To the future. Edward had been in New York for just over two months when it happened. He had been visiting the site of a condemned building in order to assess the property's potential for a new collection of townhomes in an up-and-coming neighborhood when the building collapsed. Three men were killed, including Edward, and two more were badly injured. It was amidst this fog of grief and guilt that Nathaniel wandered into the bright labyrinth of the hospital hallways, the pain of his sleep deprivation radiating through his body, and had continued to work with patients like Charlie Winston, who paid the ultimate price for Nathaniel's state of mind on that awful day. Nathaniel had been incredibly fortunate to only be stripped of his position at the hospital and not subjected to more serious consequences, but that was of little consolation. His punishment instead would be a lifetime of shame, doomed to fall on the other side of the glass, so to speak, a patient forever and a doctor no more. Dr. Lindstrom looked at him with pity. It was the same expression Nathaniel had given to many of his own patients, and for the first time, he understood the humiliation of being on the receiving end of it. It is difficult to put these feelings into words, but it is important that you try. But there were no words to be spoken that could ever describe Nathaniel's pain. The mere thought of speaking to Dr. Lindstrom about it made him feel completely exhausted. All he wanted in the world was to sleep, to welcome the bliss of unconsciousness, a dimension where none of this was real, and even the nightmares would be temporary and relatively harmless but the realm of sleep was the last place his mind would allow him to be. Perhaps that's enough for today, Dr. Lindstrom said as she closed her notebook. We can continue tomorrow. Nathaniel was escorted back to his empty room with the wire caught and no window. It was a far cry from the warmth of his study. He desperately longed to be surrounded by his books and the glow of the lantern, comfortable and happy, tucked away from the chaos of life and the cold winter wind that tore through the city outside. He laid down and longed for sleep. He could not remember the last time he woke feeling rested, certainly not since Edward's death and perhaps not for days or even weeks prior to it. Now here he was on the sterile cot in the empty room, doomed to a permanent state of confusion between being awake and being asleep, constantly wondering where his real pain ended and his nightmares began. His mind raced with images of his last dinner with Edward, the emptiness of the hospital hallways, Charlie's dead body lying on a slab in the morgue due to his own incompetence, and the four young versions of himself who sat alone in rooms exactly like this one, desperate to be relieved of the guilt each of them felt for failing Edward in one way or another. Exhaustion occasionally overtook him and allowed him to drift off, but his mind could not let go. He hallucinated waking up several times, sometimes at the hospital and sometimes in his own bed, but felt paralyzed and unable to move or speak. This cycle continued for hours at a time, 
the false sense of waking life and the brain's constant attempts to keep him from full consciousness, lest he wake up and feel his heartbreak over and over again. All he could do was hope to again find his nightmares to be the result of his hypnotherapy, and wait to hear Dr. Lindstrom's voice asking him if he was ready to wake up. Thank you for joining me for our seventh and final episode of The Witch and Other Tales of the American Gothic. Special thanks to our amazing voice actors, Benedict Mazurek, Shannon Spangler, and Ian Gifford, to our friends Brian Taylor, Joe Carrillo, and Dara Stone for their support, and to my favorite composer-slash-audio-engineer-slash-human, Robinton Hobbs. And as we have now reached our final episode in the series, I must extend my gratitude to you, dear listeners for embarking upon this journey with us. Creating these stories and bringing them to you has been a wondrous and fulfilling adventure that we could not have accomplished if not for your support. If you've enjoyed these stories, feel free to follow The Gasp with Jessica Hobbs on Substack or check out the book at jessicahobbswrites.com slash American Gothic. See you there.